You're listening to West Virginia Week, a regular podcast from West Virginia Public Broadcasting that looks back at the major stories of the week. This week, the legislature had Child Care Advocacy Day, an issue leaders flagged as a top priority at the start of the session. But with the session more than halfway through, action still remains to be seen. We also hear about law and order issues facing the state, a bill that narrows definitions of gender, as well as an update on Corridor H. I'm your host this week, Chris Schultz. Let's jump right in with a few short news stories. The West Virginia House of Delegates is reviewing a bill that would eliminate work permits for 14 and 15-year-olds. Jack Walker has the story. Currently, 14 and 15-year-olds in West Virginia must receive a permit to work in the state. But House Bill 5159 would only require proof of their age in the form of a state-issued age certificate. At a meeting of the House Committee on Government Organization Monday, lawmakers added a clause to the bill that requires parental consent for employment. But Delegate Kayla Young, a Democrat from Kanawha County, still foresaw risks in the bill. This is too onerous and repealing laws that I think are good laws to have. So I think there's ways that we can do this that isn't taking a complete axe to it. A majority of committee members voted in favor of the bill, sending it to the House floor with the recommendation that it pass. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Jack Walker in Shepherdstown. A bill passed the state Senate that would prohibit anyone smoking in the car with a minor. Brianna Heaney has the story. Lead sponsor of the bill, Tom Takubo, a Republican from Kanawha County and a pulmonologist, says he has received letters in support of the bill. During a Senate floor session, he read excerpts from a letter from a man in Mingo County whose parents smoked in the car with him. He too uh, grew up in a car full of that heavy smoke. Uh, said it, it made him so short of breath, so constricted that it, it made him cough to the point of vomiting and amongst other things. Um, then went on to say how his brother died of lung cancer, uh, another sister with brain cancer, sister died of emphysema. The bill states that smoking in the car with anyone under the age of 16 would result in a $25 fine. Takubo says the bill will double as a public service announcement to parents to rethink smoking in the car with their children present. However, Mike Azinger, a Republican from Wood County, says this is a violation of parental rights. Parents making this decision over their children um, in their vehicle and this is the state going where it has no business going, so I would urge uh, a no vote. The bill passed with 25 senators voting for the bill and eight voting against it. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Brianna Heaney in Charleston. The House is currently reviewing a bill that aims to ban the state from creating financial ties to certain foreign entities. Jack Walker has more. House Bill 4364 would bar the state from receiving goods or services that benefit China, Cuba, Iran, Laos, North Korea, Saudi Arabia, or Vietnam. The bill states that these nations have values antithetical to the state's own. At House Committee on Government Organization meeting Monday, some delegates expressed concern that the bill would violate constitutional law. Others, like Delegate Chris Pritt, a Republican from Kanawha County, said members of the committee have the authority to interpret whether the bill is constitutional. It's up for us to make determinations and to give our input in terms of what's constitutional and what's not. The bill received approval from committee members and was sent to the House Committee on the Judiciary for further discussion. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Jack Walker in Shepherdstown. Advocates report the monthly benefit rate for minors with black lung has not kept up with inflation. Emily Rice has more. 
The Federal Black Lung Benefits Program was created in 1969 to pay for health care and provide monthly compensation to minors who could no longer work due to the disease. Advocates like Quentin King, the federal legislative specialist at Appalachian Voices, say that the stipend has not kept up with rising prices. Aside from trying to prevent black lung, this is the main concern that coal miners um, with black lung have is getting a simple stipend increase. According to Appalachia Voices, in 1969, a miner received $144.50 each month. Today, miners receive less than 30% of the value of the original amount at $773 a month. For Appalachia Health News, I'm Emily Rice in Charleston. Appalachia Health News is a project of West Virginia Public Broadcasting with support from Charleston Area Medical Center and Marshall Health. Some of the state's public schools are not in compliance with a safety requirement aimed at facilitating emergency response. I have that story. Passed in 2019, House Bill 2541, titled the School Access Safety Act, requires county boards of education to implement school safety programs that include placing room numbers on exterior walls or windows and providing local first responders with up-to-date floor plans. The plans should be provided by September 1st, but Tony Smith, school safety unit officer, told the State Board of Education Wednesday not all districts are in compliance. We are telling those folks and the superintendents, we got to have those. Those have to be up to date because in an unfortunate incident that we got a hot call on, those, that stuff has to need, be up to date. Board President Paul Hardesty says he wants the names of all schools that have not completed their crisis response plans to be published on the board website immediately. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Chris Schultz in Morgantown. A potential school shooting in Cabell County may have been thwarted last week. Tony Smith, an officer with the school safety unit, told the State Board of Education Wednesday a student had a manifesto and a list of students and administrators he planned to kill. Jason Spears, Cabell County prosecuting attorney, confirmed to West Virginia Public Broadcasting that the incident is under investigation but declined to comment further due to the ongoing nature of the situation as well as the involvement of a minor. A federal appeals court has again rejected a bid by Virginia landowners to challenge the construction of a natural gas pipeline. Curtis Tate has more. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit ruled Tuesday that the Virginia landowners cannot sue developers of the Mountain Valley Pipeline for taking their land through eminent domain. The same court had earlier rejected the landowner's case, but the U.S. Supreme Court sent it back for further review. The Federal Energy Regulatory Commission issued a siting certificate to the pipeline's builders in 2017. It enabled them to use eminent domain to acquire property for the 303-mile pipeline. The $7.2 billion project is over its original budget and past its scheduled completion. When finished in the coming months, it will transport as much as 2 billion cubic feet of gas a day. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Curtis Tate in Charleston. On Tuesday, lawmakers on the House Health and Human Resources Committee moved to legalize the sale of raw milk in West Virginia. Emily Rice has more. House Bill 4911 would permit the sale of raw milk as long as it is clearly labeled as ungraded along with the seller's name and date of production. The bill also provides some immunity for the sellers. Delegate Mike Pushkin, a Democrat from Kanawha County, moved to amend the bill to remove that immunity. If they do something wrong, people get sick, they should be able to, to seek justice over this. If, it, if it's so safe, 
then why do we need this this line in the bill? After some debate, Pushkin's amendment was rejected. The House committee sent the bill to the House floor for consideration by the entire body. For Appalachia Health News, I'm Emily Rice in Charleston. Senator Shelley Moore Capito renewed calls for border security during a speech in Martinsburg Thursday. Jack Walker has more. Capito delivered a speech during a meeting of the Rotary Club of Martinsburg Thursday afternoon. She clarified her recent vote against the bill that would have added border security jobs and raised asylum claim standards, while also extending aid to Israel, Ukraine, and Taiwan. She said lawmakers developed the bill in good faith, but that it would not have been effective enough to address security needs. Later, the Senate passed a foreign aid bill that omitted mention of the southern border, and now faces a vote in the House. Capito voted in favor of the bill, but she said including alternative border security measures would have strengthened it. I kept saying we need amendments, we need to have border security, we need to have border security. In the end, that got stripped out, and the only option was to vote for foreign uh, assistance. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Jack Walker in Martinsburg. Children attending state-run virtual school may no longer have to be vaccinated if a bill before the House Health Committee becomes law. Emily Rice has more. The original version of House Bill 5105 would have exempted all students in virtual school from being vaccinated. The bill was amended to say that a child that participates in extracurricular activities at a public school must be immunized. Delegates debated why children are allowed to participate in church or vacations without vaccination. Delegate Rick Griffith, a Democrat from Wayne County, cited general welfare. Little League is not controlled by the state of West Virginia of the federal government, it's parents' choice. But when you put somebody in the public school system and you threaten their lives, their welfare, their health, it's the general welfare. And that's why we have these things. The bill passed as amended and was referred to the Committee on the Judiciary. For Appalachia Health News, I'm Emily Rice in Charleston. Steelmaker Cleveland Cliffs said Thursday it will idle its Weirton tin plate plant in April putting 950 workers out of a job. Curtis Tate has more. The Cleveland-based company said an unfavorable ruling from the International Trade Commission was behind the move. Last year, Cleveland Cliffs and the United Steel Workers petitioned the U.S. Department of Commerce to declare unfair trade practices on foreign tin and chromium-coated sheet steel products. Commerce then imposed tariffs on four countries, Canada, China, South Korea, and Germany. However, the International Trade Commission rejected the tariffs earlier this month. Cleveland Cliffs said the plant's workers would be offered opportunities to transfer or receive severance. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Curtis Tate in Charleston. You're listening to West Virginia Week. And now, some of our top feature stories from the past week. Every year, bills about crime and punishment come before the state legislature. Often, they adjust punishment or even establish a new section of the state's criminal code. For the legislature today, Randy Yowie spoke with Delegate Sean Fluarty, a Democrat from Ohio County, and Senator Mike Stewart, a Republican from Kanawha County, and a former U.S. attorney, to get their take on bills before both chambers. And we're here at our spot in the Capitol Rotunda talking law and order with uh, Senator Mike Stewart and Delegate Sean Fluharty. Gentlemen, thanks for being here today. I appreciate it. Thanks, thanks for, having for having us. Um, let's start out with uh, one of the things that uh, President Blair began with when we had our uh, little look ahead for the legislature. And he talked about a death penalty for someone convicted of wholesale trafficking of fentanyl. 
Uh, I'll start with you, Senator. Your thoughts, I don't know if that bill is quite crafted yet or has, has, has seen the light of day, but he's mentioned that proposal once or twice. Listen, I think there's a great appetite for this. Our state has suffered immeasurably from the opiate scourge, from the cartel feeding drugs into West Virginia. You know, I carry that wallet every day filled with the victims of the opiate crisis. Those victims are real. They touch all across West Virginia, but there are two death penalty bills, really, that we're discussing in the Senate. One is with respect to wholesale distribution of fentanyl leading to death. The other is a bill I've introduced and hopefully get debate on, uh, which is the intentional killing of first responders in the line of duty. So I believe there'll be two debates, two discussions on two death penalty bills, both of which I think the people of West Virginia want and deserve. Delegate Fluharty, we haven't had the death penalty here in West Virginia for quite a long while. Your thoughts there? Yeah, well, you know, the supermajority wants to lead us back into the 1800s. This is just another example of uh, how they want to go about it. It's an antiquated view of the world. I get it. It polls well. They think it's great politics. I don't believe it's good policy. This is a personal issue for myself and my family. I actually have had uh, family members who were murdered in cold blood, and when it happened, I'd be the first one in line to tell you we deserve to have, we should have the death penalty. If you put me in a room with them right now, I'd be the only one that comes out. I'll tell you what, it's not good policy. I've been practicing law in this state, including a little bit of criminal defense. We have a flawed system, and the last thing we want on our hands is a state putting somebody to death that may or may not have actually done the crime. There's no guarantee, we cannot have that guarantee for us as a state. We could talk about it all day, drugs coming in, sure, but you can never absolutely guarantee that the person that you are putting to death committed the crime, unless we have that guarantee, I can't, I can't support that. I think it's an antiquated view of the world. We can lock these individuals up. We can throw away the key. We can go about our business as a state. But for us to put that, for the state to be putting people to death again and taking us back into these antiquated views, I'm not in support of it. But I can tell you there is a guarantee of this. The first responders in the line of duty, look at Sergeant Corey Maynard, who went down on an ordinary day to Mingo County, was ambushed in the line of duty. He's the father of two beautiful kids, husband, incredible character. Look at Cassie Johnson, patrolman here in, on the streets of Charleston, working an ordinarily, uh, ordinary parking dispute. Deputy Sheriff uh, Baker out of Nicholas County, who was gunned down in the line of duty. Listen, those are just three examples, but we just saw recently in Martinsburg, Abe Bain and, uh, and, patrol, and Trooper Spessert who were shot in the line of duty, they returned fire. That defendant no longer uh, is going to face trial because he was, he was killed in the line of duty. Uh, but Abe Bain lost his leg, could have lost his life. It's important we take these types of steps to protect first responders all across West Virginia. I think it's a time who's come. And we do have more modern techniques today to make sure innocent folks aren't put down unnecessarily. I mean, the senator makes a good point, but uh, I think that we have... Does he? Pen well, but let me finish. I think we have penalties that are about as high as you can get without the death penalty for people that commit these kind of crimes, it, do we not? It's not a deterrent. The idea that these crimes will not take place because now we have death penalty on the books is foolish, okay? Criminals are not r looking through state codes before they enact their crimes. But yet we talk about it as if that's the case. 
It's just not. It's, it's bad about, policy. It's bad policy for a state to put forward antiquated ideas, whether it's a death penalty or any other antiquated bills running through this chamber. It's not antiquated. There are 27 states across this country that use the it's death hardly penalty, ever administered. both for deterrence and for justice. It's not a deterrent. And right. there's a word called justice that matters when it comes to protecting our first responders in the line of duty. And what do we say to family after family after family that suffers at the hands of the cartel? Fentanyl that freely flows into West Virginia. There's not a family, street, church, school that hasn't been impacted by this crisis. I think it's important we make a very bold and strong statement all across the country. You want to be a criminal? You want to engage in that conduct? Don't do it in West Virginia. It's great politics, and that's why he supports us so so much right now since he's running for attorney general. I mean, we could have this conversation all day. It's going to be the same same sound loop. That was Delegate Sean Fluarty and Senator Mike Stewart speaking with Randy Yowie for the legislature today. The Women's Bill of Rights, House Bill 5243, would put certain definitions of man and woman into code and determine who can use single-sex spaces. Brianna Heaney sat down with Delegate Mike Pushkin, a Democrat from Kanawha County, and Molly Kennedy, a community outreach director at the American Civil Liberties Union, to discuss the bill. West Virginia Public Broadcasting tried several times to get one of the Republican sponsors of the bill to come onto the show and discuss it, but they declined. First question that I have for both of you, I'll give both of you guys a chance to answer this. What are some actions the legislature should do to protect and empower women in the state? Well, uh, first of all, this bill is uh, has an incorrect name. If you were talking about the, if we're talking about the bill that we haven't uh, quite gotten to that yet. We mm-hmm. will get to that, but let's just first talk generally about women in the state okay. I think and we what start we can do too. With uh, uh, House Resolution uh, 27, I believe, which would allow voters. Uh, to vote on on reproductive health care, reproductive rights, and uh, let voters have a say-so in in this ban that has been imposed on the state on on reproductive health care. I think we should uh, pass the Fair Pay Act, Katherine Johnson Fair Pay Act. I think the women in the workplace deserve to get paid the same as their male counterparts. We need to address child care issues in this state. Uh, I don't want to take up all the time. I'm very interested to hear. Yeah, yeah. I I think women in the state have been asking for a whole host of things. Uh, We've let fair pay just sit on the desk and not move. Um, We could address affordable childcare, we could address parental leave. There are all sorts of ways that we could help families in West Virginia thrive. Um, But again and again, the legislature shows that they're not interested in that. They're interested in bills like the Women's Bill of Rights. Talk to me about fair pay. I've heard some opponents of some of the bills that have been introduced say women are already paid fairly in the state. I think part of the problem here is that we're not even really spending time talking about the the nuance of fair pay. We're ignoring that to focus on bills that punch down on transgender people, um, take away bodily autonomy from people. We're not even having those conversations. Um, So I would much rather hear them discuss the nuance of how we make fair pay equitable and make it fit for all West Virginians. Um, but again, I don't, I don't see that as the priority here. We're focused on these culture war issues. And the facts are women are not paid equally. Uh, I mean, the data shows that women make, uh, you know, on average 75 cents, 80 cents on the dollar compared uh, to men doing the same work. So it is something we should address. It's a bill that Democrats have, have introduced year after year uh, the Katherine Johnson Fair Pay Act, and the uh, Republican supermajority refuses to run it. 
Now, they have a bill that is currently pulled off the calendar that they erroneously call the Women's Bill of Rights. Uh, the Democratic House Caucus, which I'm a member of, we tried to amend in an actual Women's Bill of Rights into that bill, uh, which would have included, uh, you know, uh, addressing the child care crisis in the state. There's a lot of uh, young parents, not just women, young parents who have a hard time uh, being able to enter into the workforce because the uh, child care is not just, uh, it, it's, it's not just that it's unaffordable, it's inaccessible in some areas. There is not, a, you know, we have a child care crisis. There, um, also in that bill, we, we had uh, reproductive rights in general. Actually, all health care rights were in that bill. Um, uh, there were, uh, we actually made an actual real women's bill of rights. Unfortunately, the only part of our bill that got into the bill was removing an archaic uh, uh, part of code that actually exempted uh, people in a marriage from being charged with, uh, with sexual assault. Now, because we got that amendment in there, now the bill has been parked. Strangely enough, there are members of the Republican caucus that, that have a hard time voting for it because it exempts, uh, because of that exemption that should have been removed from code a long time ago. So the House bill that you guys are referring to, mm -hmm. House Bill 5243, um, a bill that replaces the word gender in state code with the word sex. Um, the bill also defines two sexes, male and female, and it prohibits um, trans people from being in certain places like bathrooms and locker rooms that are consistent with their gender identity. Um, let's talk about who this bill will impact. Um, I think, first of all, it's really important to note that when we start to micromanage what gender is and what we expect people to look like based on um, our assumptions about gender, it hurts everybody. So uh, there was a good example of this in Oklahoma, I believe a member of a school board called out a high school basketball player um, and uh, made a big to-do about them being a transgender player on the girls' team. And this girl's face was plastered everywhere, became the target of harassment. She wasn't transgender, she was a cisgender kid playing basketball, and she became a community target of harassment because a school board member decided that when she looked at her, her body build was bigger than she would have expected for a cisgender girl playing basketball. That was Molly Kennedy and Delegate Mike Pushkin speaking with Brianna Heaney for the legislature today. The House of Delegates passed House Bill 5243 Wednesday. It is now in the Senate Judiciary Committee. Leaders from both sides of the aisle have declared that child care for the working men and women of West Virginia is a priority for economic and workforce development. So far, there has been plenty of talk but little legislative action. Randy Yowie spoke with Delegate Joey Garcia, a Democrat from Marion County, and Delegate Evan Worrell, a Republican from Cabell County, to explore the issue. Delegate okay, Worrell, let me start with you. You're chair of the House uh, Workforce Development Committee. Now, Speaker of the House Roger Hanshaw has said that when these new businesses that are coming into West Virginia, the first thing they ask about anymore is not education, it's not roads, it's childcare. Uh, and there's a number of bills that I've seen that were presented uh, to deal with childcare, yet I don't see a whole lot of them coming to light yet. What's going on? Yeah, so Randy, first of all, you're right. Workforce development is huge when it comes to childcare because we have people who, if, it's, if there's a childcare desert, you know, you can't go to work, right? So we've seen that. We have the data that shows that. And you're right. There have been a host of bills. I think six bills that we've looked at 
uh, introduced in the House. And there's been a lot of stakeholder meetings at play. That's been a big deal. We want to make sure that everybody has a, has a voice, has a say in the process. So that's held up things a little bit. Um, but obviously, we're also trying to fit money into the budget, right, for child care. It doesn't come free, right? And so we need to make sure that we're looking at the parents, the providers, and also for workforce development, and it comes at a cost. And so I think while we're seeing some movement, part of that is how do they fit in the pieces of the puzzle, right? For example, enrollment versus attendance, a very big deal, been going on for over 20 years since I just told you I had my children in daycare, and we're gonna see it on the House Health Agenda tomorrow. So we'll be discussing that tomorrow afternoon. Once it's passed, it'll be referred to the Committee on Finance, where they can take, hopefully, that cost and fit into the puzzle of the state budget. Delegate Garcia, we heard in one of the recent Democratic press conferences that that was a priority of yours, and you were concerned that things weren't moving along fast enough. Yeah, I, th I think, you know, we are at, what, day 35, 36. I mean, we don't have that much time left. We have till day 50 to try to get bills through the House. And especially when bills have two committees that they've been referred to, uh, it's important that we get these bills moving. And, and I, I have some hope. And I think, again, this is a, this is a bipartisan effort. That's right. And I really think that there, from the speaker down, there are people uh, throughout the legislature that believe that this is, it should be almost the priority right now. Everybody talks about workforce, and you can't have workforce improvement for many people unless you solve the problem of making sure they have access to quality and affordable childcare. And I think a lot of these bills, you know, I think it's almost like four uh, parts of, uh, uh, or legs of a chair. I mean, you gotta have stability, right? You have to make sure that we have these childcare providers that can continue to do what they do. You have to have increase in access, which means we have to recruit more workforce because the, the, if we have one, um, child specialist, that means we're going to have six more uh, children that have access in normal situations. We've got to improve the quality, and again, we have bills that would, inc uh, would provide for tax incentives, both, both for employers and for individuals to try to make sure they can actually get that. Well, let's talk tax incentives first. I know we passed a bill last year that kind of, if, if I read it right, the bigger corporations get a 50% tax credit on what they build and how they, or how they operate it. Correct. Uh, that leaves out the, the regular Joe Jane families and the smaller businesses. Uh, what do we have to address them? Yeah, so first of all, we're going to see that tax credit expanded to 100% this year. I think we're going to see that through a bill, but then also other tax credits for the smaller businesses that are providing the child daycare centers as well. So this isn't a one, uh, you know, one approach, it's multifaceted. We're also not going to fix this problem overnight, but we do address the fact that it is a priority and we're going to make sure we get things done. But I think what's exciting is that we do see tax credits incentives for small businesses and some other bills. Uh, but once again, we're also looking at the actual employees and the parents as well. It has to be affordable, has to be quality, as Delegate Garcia said. And I think at the end of the day, some of these bills are, are going to really make a difference. And I, and I spoke with child care advo advocates today. As you know, today was Child Care Advocacy Day. And, um, you know, we all are in agreement that these are things that are going to help and move the needle and make things better for West Virginians. Because I, I spoke to them as well today, and I found out the cost of a yeah. year's child care for an infant is the same as sending a person to a year's tuition at WVU or Marshall, about five grand, yet $5,000, excuse me. But the governor's proposal of $1,000 per year, I mean, that just doesn't even scratch the surface. Why, and, and I think, number one, we have to start somewhere. And I, and I think that's where we are right now. At the same time, I've talked to many people uh, who have discussed 
going into the workforce or leaving the workforce because they have children that they have to put into childcare if they're going to work. And, and, and this is one of the main things we talk to childcare providers about is when they need the workforce to actually improve access, many of those individuals, they have to have some place for their children to go. And so I think one thing that we are looking at too is providing for uh, that their childcare would be covered. Yep. And that's a, that's a huge part to attract people that otherwise would say, hey, it makes more sense to stay home. But then when, it, when you go to uh, the situation where, again, it's, it's a thousand, maybe out of 5,000, we have to really think about that mm -hmm. and what that means. Because if it's an economic decision that I'm not gonna go to work, that, that is completely different than some of the criticism that you hear about people not wanting to work. Right. It's that it does not make sense for them to work. That was Delegate Evan Morrell and Delegate Joey Garcia speaking with Randy Yowie about issues relating to affordable child care in the state. The Senate unanimously passed SB 571, creating an advanced energy and economic corridor authority for Corridor H. Curtis Tate spoke with Economic Development Secretary Mitch Carmichael about the importance of Corridor H to the state. Before the discussion, though, they talked about some breaking news about a steel plant in the northern panhandle. Secretary Carmichael, I wanted to talk about Corridor H, um, but I also think we should use this opportunity to, to talk about the, the kind of breaking news that we had this morning about Cleveland Cliffs and uh, the announcement that it's going to idle the plant in Weirton. That affects 950 workers, obviously has some uh, implications for the state and local economy. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, uh, the reporting is uh, very clear, I think, that um, uh, the 10 mill plant that Cleveland Cliffs had operated there for many, many, many years uh, was involved in a trade dispute and uh, uh, the International Trade Commission ruled that their uh, objections to the policy were not uh, uh, sufficient to carry uh, the necessary tariffs. Uh, and so as a result of that decision, uh, Cleveland Cliffs made the business decision to uh, to uh, lay off those workers and uh, let me just say uh, Curtis our heart goes out for those workers and we will immediately engage uh, to uh, try to find new jobs new opportunities for those uh, employees as well as to create uh, great uh, you know new adventures and new jobs and opportunities in that area. I've been in West Virginia for about three years now, and it just seemed like for, for the longest time there, it was good news after good news after good news. You had uh, Nucor and uh, Form Energy, Berkshire Hathaway, Green Power, among many others. Yeah. And this, this kind of, uh, it, it, it seems like it goes the other way a little bit. What sort of, you know, break glass in case of emergency tool do you have yeah. to, to help uh, address this? Well, we have a rapid response team that will immediately deploy to the site. We're already working with, they're represented by the United Steel Workers Union. Uh, we're working with them. We're also engaged with the business uh, opportunities that are considering that area for future development and uh, see if we can accelerate those decisions. So uh, the governor's very adamant. I'm uh, sort of the point person for making sure that those opportunities exist for our citizens and whenever uh, the business cycle uh, comes through and uh, you know disrupts a, uh, a current employer uh, there's probably our heart just breaks for those situations but we also know we have tools and opportunities and funds that we can immediately go in and address the situation and try with everything in us to make sure that there's uh, those employees have 
uh, all the benefits that come with uh, layoffs as a result uh, from a, a work shortage, shuttering, or uh, new opportunities. And uh, so, uh, you know, uh, we're going to try to make lemonade uh, out of these lemons. Well, I, I see two problems right away. Uh, one is that, that it, 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 the employees are being offered either transfers or, or severance. Well, if they transfer, they may have to leave the state, and that, of yeah. course, worsens the, the problem of population loss. And, and others, if they can't find uh, new jobs, that worsens the problem of workforce participation. Yeah. So uh, what, what's, what's kind yeah. of like the best hope here? Yeah, well, it's never good, obviously, when a, when a business shuts down. And probably uh, I have as much experience in... Uh, the uh, the negative impacts of a job uh, of a plant shuttering as anyone. I'm from Jackson County, and when the uh, aluminum plant uh, shuttered, Century Aluminum Century Aluminum shuttered, you know, so many people, my friends, neighbors, were affected. So I know the personal level. Now, at the business level, uh, our job is to create opportunities, and uh, you know, we have a new uh, uh, modern plant emerging from the former Weirton Steel site. Uh, with Form Energy, it's a fantastic facility, and uh, they're conducting job interviews all the time. That's a 750-employee uh, facility, will be. And we're talking with many other customers who have a unique interest in that Weirton uh, Northern Panhandle area. So uh, we're going to redouble our efforts and uh, approach that like our hair's on fire. We know that we need uh, to get these uh, jobs created quickly, and uh, uh, you know, I want to, uh, we shouldn't let it uh, go without saying that Cleveland Cliffs has been a great employer for the area for many years there. Uh, it's unfortunate that they've made this decision, uh, but it's a business cycle. Uh, we're going to do everything we can to work with the International Trade Commission to see if the decision can be reversed. Short of that, we're going to find new jobs and new opportunities for uh, that area. Well, it certainly is possible that that site could be uh, repurposed for oh. something. You mentioned Century Aluminum. That's where Berkshire Hathaway Energy is Absolutely, going. Absolutely, Curtis. And uh, as you mentioned at the start of your segment, we've had a ton of success here in West Virginia with recruiting uh, world-class companies. And so uh, we think we know how to do this. Uh, I think it's been validated that we know how to do it, and we're going to immediately engage. We've already, we're already talking to uh, uh, potential employers for that area that see uh, a great workforce that's being go going to be displaced that can immediately transition to new opportunities. That was Economic Development Secretary Mitch Carmichael speaking with Curtis Tate about the layoffs in Wheeling announced Thursday. To hear the rest of that interview and the others in this show, visit our website and tune into the legislature today, Monday through Friday at 6 p.m. That's it for West Virginia Week. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you back here next week. As always, you can see these stories and more at wvpublic.org. I'm Chris Schultz.